Do you ever wonder how you're going to make ends meet when you're older or when times are uncertain? Financial planning, does that scare you? I'm here today with Lise Allen, who is the CEO of Lise Allen Financial Planning. And she is a powerhouse. She has done so much. And we're going to get a wealth of knowledge on how to prepare ourselves for the future. You don't want to miss this. This is going to be awesome. Hi, Lise. So good to be here. <laughs> I I feel like I, I can't do enough justice for the knowledge and wealth of experience that you bring to the table. And we're just going to scratch the surface, begin to start scratching the surface and have a wonderful conversation. Sounds great. Um, I know for me, as someone who is a daughter of immigrants and, you know, thinking about estate planning, like that was never in our realm of of life and, you know, thinking about how to save money, how to make money grow. I never had the financial literacy. And so it was really such a privilege to meet you and to realize it's not that scary because you also make it easy to digest. Good to hear. You know, Um, but I would love to start before we start getting into the nuts and bolts about financial planning, because I think what sets you apart from others You have so much passion for what you do. You have a passion for making the world a better place. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. You know, so Lise, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I didn't start out in financial planning. I went to Queen's University and took a biology degree. Big emphasis on the ecology, on saving our planet. In the chemistry part, we learned the scientific method, which is a way to organize data set goals and reach them. Then I took a master's degree in public admin, and I had this idea that I would somehow work in biology for the environment in a government agency. But when I graduated and looked for jobs, there weren't any in that area. So I answered a blind ad with a large financial institution that needed two candidates to train in marketing management. And I thought, how hard can it be? We've done organic chemistry. Let's give it a go. So it turned out to be uh, life insurance and financial planning. And I didn't know anything about it, but they trained and uh, it started organically. And I started working back in the 1970s and 80s with working women. Only 2% of financial advisors were women. 98% were men. And they tended to make a beeline for the male breadwinner because we were just coming out of the little woman still staying at home. So a lot of chauvinism and a lot of women were left out of the financial planning process. But there were a lot of women who didn't have husbands, didn't have partners. They were single, they were divorced, they were widowed, they were starting businesses. So I thought, why don't I start working with working women, see how that goes. So I had a very simple talk. I would send them a piece of mail saying, we haven't met. My name's Lise Allen. I work in financial planning. I don't know if my services can help you. Do you want to have a coffee and talk? And 90 to 100% of them would say, sure. They'd never been, never, ever been approached before. Thank goodness it's a little different now, several decades later. But we would work with three interviews, which is something I still do today. And the first one is we would just talk and set some goals and gather data in confidence. And then I'd go away and prepare a financial plan with options 
The second meeting, if she had a partner, we would include her partner and talk about if she wanted to accomplish this, here's some ways you could do it. This is the amount of money that you'll need to start setting aside. And if you do, this is what we anticipate with several examples of interest rates it'll grow to and what it'll do for you at the other end. And then I would leave the plan with them for a week or two to think about it. And then I would say, if you want to start implementing in meeting number three, bring your checkbook and that's what we'll do. So low key compared to how financial instruments were sold and marketed back in the day. But it's still that way, Lise. A big part of what brought me to you is that when I was on the journey of like, oh, I need to figure out my finances and how I'm going to retire, make sure I'm investing my money wisely, was the conversation would always come down to big numbers and I would always feel othered and I always felt like, I don't have enough money. Mm -hmm. Most people don't think they have enough money, but there are several categories of people who, uh, little ones just starting out, kids starting out. Uh, We do all those financial plans pro bono. If the person's interested, we just do the financial plan. We have no expectation that they'll start with us yet. Maybe they'll come back to us in a few years when they're ready. And then we have people that just have a little bit to start with. It's more the behavior that I'm interested in. If they have a little bronze portfolio with, you know, $1,000 or $10,000 or $25,000, it's a start. But if they do their homework and they show up for their meetings, all of those bronze portfolios are going to go to silver and gold and they will be comfortable in retirement. It takes about 13 years if you have nothing, nothing at all to start being comfortable, like create a comfortable life for yourself. So you're not worried about being poor when you're old. And I think we've created over 50 millionaires from scratch in our practice over the past few decades. But it's not us. It's the clients showing up, doing their homework, making rational decisions, caring about their family, working with what they have. Yeah. And once they realize they can do it, uh, money grows exponentially. And by that, I mean, it doesn't grow in a straight line. You put a little bit in and you put a little more and it starts to grow like this. Most people come to us at an average of age 49. Average age of 49. 49. That should be comforting. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of people are like, <laughs> That's right. I don't know where to start. That's right. And I, and I really wanted to, you know, talk with you because I actually work with lots of clients where they don't know if they've saved up enough money to That's buy right. a house. That's right. Can I even afford it? And and you can see them scrambling. And, and I say to them, you know, this journey for us to buy a house for you may not happen tomorrow. Exactly. But right. Let's get some things set up. And that's a part of when I meet with people, I'm like, okay, you're worried about your finances. Don't worry. I know the right people to connect you with that'll help build you up. And then we'll, we'll be able to go from there. Exactly. And that's right. what you come, that's where you that's come right. into play. <laughs> right. And we, and we can bring some decent bankers in too, because they're going to be the approval, approval for the, for yeah. the mortgages. Mm-hmm. So most people don't engage in long-term thinking. Yeah. They think sort of this year. And so if I sit down and ask them about their goals and I'll say, for example, uh, tell me about your cars. What's that got to do with my retirement? Well, it's a big purchase. And a house is a big purchase. If we can get the cars and the houses and some of the other lifestyle things you want in the plan, you're going to stick with it. But they say, well, we we won't need another car. And I'm like, you're 33 ever? Oh, well, probably not for another eight years or so. Great. You're still going to have me as your advisor in eight years or my office. Let's put that next car in the plan. And then what it does, it doesn't mean that they're cashing investments for that car. We already have a plan for that car separate from their retirement. But there's so many instruments now that will help people save for a house. 
And we like to anchor every financial plan, if we can, with buying real estate. Yeah. And if they want to buy real estate, even if it takes us 10 years to get that together, once they're paying on a mortgage instead of paying on rent, as you well know, you get the capital appreciation on the house. Even if they pay interest only on the mortgage, you're going to build some equity. And banks like financial plans to be grounded with real estate. Yep. Once that's in place, we know when we're going to buy the house. We're going to buy a house seven years from now. This is what we're setting aside. We're going to use your RRSPs, both of you. We'll use this new plan that the government has. They can put 8000 a year in until you're 40. And we can use some tax-free savings. And sometimes they're fortunate enough to have parents to uh, help them with a, a loan or something like that too, to get into their first house. And if they have their, their eyes on a house that you know is way above their reach, I'll say, what about a stepping stone house? Why wouldn't you, pre you stay where you are, pre-order a studio condo, you know, for whatever hundreds of thousands of that, put a tenant in it, build some equity that, sell it, that'll help us get the extra 100,000 we need for the down payment. So whatever they want, we can do. Maybe they want a cottage property. Maybe they want to retire early and start their own business. Yeah. Any of those goals are important to put in the financial plan. Maybe they're worried about their children. How are we going to fund the children's education? There's seven sources of money for kids to go to university and college. Most people don't even know. Yeah. You don't have to put a second mortgage on your house so the kids can go. We can bring the kids in and get them started. So it depends the lifestyle, the goals, the number of dependents they have in their family, how we tailor the financial plan. And I think that's one of the reasons why people keep coming back to us. Keep us as their financial advisor. Attend their four reviews each year, whether it's remotely or in person. Because once we get on a roll with their financial plan and it resonates with them, they, they, they'd have to mess it up on no, right? It's not even of anything like, oh, I'm never going to have a job or anything. It's just like the uncertainty becomes... Um, replaced with a plan. It's true. And to your point, uh, if you go to a, uh, an institutional advisor that says you need $4 million or you're not going to be able to retire in comfort and they haven't saved anything, that's, that's very affronting. Yeah. But here's the thing. It depends where they want to retire to. A lot of Ontarians are, are selling their houses here and buying something on the East Coast. It's true. So it depends what they want. We can tailor a plan to that. And it's not frightening once it's your plan. Yeah, I love it. So let's get started. Right. Um, you know, this is going to be a multi multi episode series. So can, why don't we start with the stages that we're going to be talking about just to give people a prelude of what we're talking about. So there are six main stages and the needs are different in a person's life. The first stage is the child stage. The child is zero to 18. They're minors. Their investments need to be on their behalf by their parents. And even if they start participating in their financial plan, which we kind of like them to see somewhere between age 10 and 15, if they show an interest, if they're not interested, don't drag them into a financial plan. But you get these bright eyes of these kids that are interested, bring them in, let them attend the first year or two. They're looking around the room and wondering what's going on. But by about year three, you bring them in every summer with their parents for their financial plan. They start to they get it very fast. It's pretty fun. Okay. So zero to 18 is that getting the minors organized for a financial plan and planning what they're going to do after high school. Are they going to go to college? Are they going to take a victory lap? Are they going to backpack across Europe? Uh, do they know what they want to be? I want to be a physician or I want to, you know, join QSAR. I want to, you know, they, they'll know by then. And also to give the young people 
an idea that it's not bad if you switch. Try something and see if it's your cup of tea. And if it isn't, we have enough flexibility in the plan to switch to another major. And then the, the, the stage after that is the young person stage between 18 and 35. Many people find their life partner, or at least their first partner during that stage, <laughs> buy a house, hopefully, um, maybe have some children. That's a really, that's a, that's a fun, interesting, have weddings, travel, be young, maybe switch types of careers a couple of times. But if they're interested in financial planning, it's quite a good place to start. And if the couple comes in to do financial planning, if they're a couple or a single, if they don't have a life partner, that's a great time to start. Mm. And they can interview several financial planners for free, one from the bank, one from Esbitt Burns or one of the big brokerage companies, an independent financial planner, a fee-only financial planner, and see who they like to work with. Because think of themselves at the head of the table at the board of directors with their real estate agent and their financial advisor and their lawyer and their banker and their accountant and so on. Mm. They're the one, they may not know a lot, but within three years, they will have very strong opinions once they start. Once they reach 35, there's a stage we call the tunnel, which is the toughest one ever. It's sort of 35 to 55. <laughs> when the children are little, you're sleep deprived, your debts are large because you've bought real estate and other things, maybe you funded a business. And uh, it's exhausting. And uh, your, your wealth, net wealth is lower because you've got the debt, you've got a leverage program going or the real estate. And you have to get through that. So you need to make time for your partner if you have one. Watch your health. Have regular reviews with your advisors of all kinds. And pace yourself because that is definitely a marathon. Wise words. 55 to 80 are junior seniors. That is probably the most fun phase ever. If you've planned it before then, people are usually entering into retirement then, planning trips. Really important to look after their health. Whatever they do as a junior senior between 55 and 80 will lend them to the quality of life they have as a senior senior between 80 to 100. And 80 to 100, usually the money is in place. They want to do some intergenerational wealth transfers. So we want to make sure that that's fair and set up properly so there's not a lot of estate erosion with taxes and legal fees and bring the powers of attorney and the executors into that so they know what's supposed to happen. And then centenarians, I've actually had three in my practice, are sort of each 100 and above. And that's uh, the world just enjoys them. Pretty mm -hmm. much need everything set up by then. Wow. You're not in the building phase. You're in the maintaining phase at that point for sure. So I'm, those are the six phases. Well, those are really important phases and you learn a lot even through everything that you've talked about because, you know, getting started. And also I think the affirmation that you just said, most people don't even get started until they're 49. Right. So I think like as we talk and go through the demo, the ages and stages of things, it's relevant whether you're a parent with a kid, whether you're a grandparent with, you know, a you know, a, a child in the tunnel age or whatever exactly. it is. And, and to that age, 49, if it takes an average of 13 years to get secure, yeah, that's still not that bad. Yeah. You know, so 60 to 62, you're pretty secure. Yeah. If you start at 49 and you don't feel you have anything, you actually do. I like that affirmation, you yeah. know, like, yeah. because I think it, it's, it's a comforting thing to like, I'm not too late. You, you may be too young for this, but Freedom 55 was something that London Life had yeah. as a marketing thing a few yeah, years ago. I remember that. And people went, oh, this is great. Freedom 55. I'm going to be able to retire at 55. 
I love that London Life had that marketing campaign way back in the day. London Life is now merged with an obviously other companies now, Canada Life and Great West Life, they all merged. But before that, people would start thinking about retirement, start thinking about retirement at 65. And they weren't ready. At 65. They would start, well, I'm going to retire at 65. So they would start thinking about the hope that what they built would be enough. It almost never was. So when London Life brought Freedom 55 to the fore, people said, well, I'm going to retire at 55. And they would come in sometime between... 50 and 55, and they weren't be ready. They weren't ready, but they had 10 more years compared to before that marketing went out. Oh, and they yeah. would joke about, well, Joe's on the Freedom 55. He's out there with this elbow, and I'm going to be a few more years. But again, you have that time. Yeah. Most time you do. Yeah. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. I'm ready when you are for <laughs> the beginning stages. What do we need to know? So when you when you sit down with your financial advisor, you should be ready to ask them five questions. Okay. And don't be shy about asking your financial advisor these five questions. And the first one is, who are you? Why are you competent to build me a financial plan? And they should be able to direct you to their website, their pedigree, some testimonials, everything they've done. And you should be able to check them out online. You should be able to check out their licenses online with the regulatory uh, bodies and make sure that they have gone off to Brazil with anybody's money. They should be able to give you all that and they shouldn't be offended if you ask. They need to justify why they're competent to give you a financial plan and they should have credentials. They should either have a CFP or a CHFC, which is a chartered financial consultant designation or a CPA. They've Mm got to have one of those three designations to even know the tax information to craft a financial plan. The second question is, tell me about your company. If they're working out of their garage in their fluffy slippers, they are not the financial advisors for you. They should be affiliated with an office, with a storefront, with a head office, with the regu- that's regulated by the regulatory bodies. Whether it's a mutual fund dealer or a major bank or a stock brokerage company or an established agency mm-hmm. should be regulated. It should be covered by errors and emissions insurance in case one of their staff makes a human error that the, the client is made whole. So you need to know about them. Question number two, you need to know about their company. The third thing is say, how do you get paid? Many clients are very shy about saying, how do you get paid? And there's several ways advisors can be paid. One is the way we get paid, which is the same as the banks. It's an embedded fee when the client starts to implement the plan with you. So, you, so what you and the client are investing is time. And if, if you like your advisor, and the advisor can be useful, you probably hire them. And if the, if it resonates with you and the synergy is good. If not, if any of those are missing, you're not out of pocket any money and you go on and interview two or three more financial advisors till there's a fit. Yeah. So the first way is an embedded fee. So for every $100,000 that you invest over time as you build that up, they get paid about 400 bucks a year. It's like, it's like an accountant, what they yeah. get paid. When you only have 10,000, you're paying them $40 a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So your, your goals are aligned to get that portfolio built. So you'll have something when you're older and so they can afford to look after you. Yeah. And you're just not in the pro bono category, which is a start. Mm-hmm. But advisors will start in the pro bono category and watch your behavior. Do you show up for meetings? Are your income taxes caught up? Uh, do you write down your questions? Do you keep your financial planning binder or spreadsheet or Excel spreadsheet? Do you do your net worth? Do you, do you 
um, make sure your notices of assessments are, are turned into your advisor each year. If that behavior happens, we have a client I know we can take to gold. Yeah. Which is between a hundred thousand and a million under investments. So, so that, that how we're paid with an embedded fee or some advisors are fee only. They don't implement the plan. They say, go to your bank, go to someone like me to implement it. And they'll do a fee only plan in Toronto. The fees usually between five and $10,000 a plan, but they're not interested in implementing. They don't want the relationship with you, mm. but they will give you the facts. That's usually an executive perk. One of the big companies will say for our top executives, we'll pay for a fee-only advisor for you. You can get some really good ideas from a fee-only advisor. And then usually if you go in for a tune-up in a couple of years, it's maybe 2500 bucks or something. Okay. In smaller towns, you won't find fee-only advisors. Nobody wants to pay $5,000 for a plan, they think, to find out what an RRSP is. Yeah. Because you can get that stuff online. So again, that's more for... For people that are very, very high incomes, usually they work with their CPA. It's a one-off and one and done. Yeah. The other way you can get an advisor is with the bank. So uh, they have financial advisors at the bank. They all have their PFP, their personal financial advisor designation, and they will talk to you and they're allowed to talk to you about banking products, but they can be very useful and it's a good place to start. And if there's a young banker and a young couple, there can be some good synergies there. So an institutional advi uh, uh, advisor or a fee-only advisor or an advisor that's on the independent side, but it works like the bank. So as you build the portfolio, they get paid. So, and get them to show you examples. So if I have this much money, what's your fee? The regulators in 2016 made all the financial institutions across the board disclose exactly what they were paid. So every year in your statement, right on page eight, you see in percentages and actual dollars what your financial advisor got. So you can say, is he worth it? Is she worth it? Like, what did I get this year from my financial advisor? Did they have meetings? Did they give me direction? Did they keep me connected to my portfolio? Do I know what I'm supposed to do next? And if not, you're looking at a fee-only advisor, in which case, okay, I've got my direction. Now I have to go and go to a banker and go to a Mutual fund license yeah. person or stockbroker. Like you do, do the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Um, the fourth one is what is the process? Yeah. I like a three interview process. That's a bias that I have. For the first meeting, you just talk. They can take your measure and you can take their measure and see if you're going to enjoy working together. Is there synergy there? Do you understand the client? Will you tailor a financial plan? Are you thorough in taking the data? Do they feel understood? You give them verbal feedback about here. The, here's the direction I, I, I think we should go based on the, the, the things that you want. And we'll firm that up over the next two meetings. Uh, and then the second meeting where there is a digital copy of the financial plan set and a bound copy if they're old school and they want coffee rings all over it. You go through the financial plan. It should have about eight or ten sections, including a letter of engagement, um, the goal section and recommendations, the net worth and cash flow and the net worth is what do I own minus what I owe. And I mean, I'm a financial advisor. I do my net worth statement monthly, <laughs> a little bit obsessive, but most clients, we should be doing the net worth statement annually and the net worth should be increasing equal to inflation plus four or 5% a year. If it's not meeting those targets, probably need to soup up the advice or the implementation. And then by the third meeting, people can decide you know, our most important thing is getting those kids to university. 
our most important thing is upgrading our house. We're in this house, but it's too small. We want to upgrade it. Or I've got this pension transfer. I've changed jobs. I'm now working for myself, but I got this chunk of money over at Procter & Gamble or Celestica or somewhere. I need it to, to be moved over. Can you do that? Of course. That's, that's what we do. We get the government forms. We get them to sign them. We move the money. Away we go. Yeah. So, and then the, then, then once those meetings are finished, financial planning, regular reviews start. So the client can see their prog progress and there should be specific targets. If we do this financial plan, this is first year we're setting up structure, figuring out what your real budget is, seeing how much we can set aside for your future. But then within two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, here are the targets we should be at so that you'll be safe at the other end. And if it's an older person that's already accumulated their wealth, we need to make sure it lasts. Sometimes when both partners are not coming to the meetings and the one who's in charge of the money dies or leaves, the other one doesn't know the difference between 200,000 and $2 million. Well, I want to give the kids each 200,000. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can leave it to them when you're finished with it. How about 5,000? Right. For Christmas once. You know, right. don't give away the family wealth before we know how much you need. Every hundred thousand should be able to deliver five thousand dollars a year, roughly, for life without touching the hundred thousand. Right. I mean, this is so important. I mean, everything that you're saying, like even the qualifications of of getting a good financial planner. Yeah. They should have some. They should have some qualifications. They can't be just. This is what I think. It can't be just based on opinion. It has to be based on their level of education as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's important. And, and even distinguishing the difference between a financial planner such as yourself versus someone at the bank. Right. Because yeah. I have found that when I've worked with people in the bank, they grow in their career path and then they're gone. And I'm like, uh, a new person. Who's this? Yeah. You know? It's true. But the banks have a lot of usefulness in a financial plan. Yeah. They are extremely good in the mortgage and the debt service. Yeah. Uh, you know, in approving the next banking package. Yeah. Part of the problem is like with with COVID, many financial institutions are understaffed now yeah. and haven't aren't able to review regularly with their clients. Okay. Um, so what I like to do is is look at their banking package. And if it hasn't been reviewed for a while, say I'd like to retool this. If the short term debt has gotten out of hand and they have a bunch on credit cards and lines of credit because yeah. they've been fixing up a house or some funding uh, disability yeah. or something like that. Then we want to go back to the bank yeah. and do an all-in package. I've had clients that said, well, we've done that several times. Well, then we didn't put the second part together, which is partitioning your money. Yeah. We have to have partitioned short-term savings accounts and then the long-term banking package. Because if we don't, say a person's got $500,000 in a mortgage and $200,000 in lines of credit and $30,000 in credit cards and some car loans. And it's just... A lot of short-term debt, we need, and let's say the house is worth a million and a half, we have enough money and equity in the house to end up putting that into a better package and uh, bringing the payments down and then partitioning the money. And there's my client calling me. Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Someone's um, calling in from the program. Absolutely. No, Hi. Hello, <laughs> caller. What is your question? Um... I was just wondering like, oh, what is that? What's happening? Um, you know, I wanted, one of the things that you had talked about is like, who is the person that you're working with? And 
I would like to take a moment to talk about you, about why I sought you out to work with you because I felt that a lot of our perspectives in life aligned and the work that you did, like you start off by talking about how you got into this, but also what you have done um, to make the world a better place. And, oh. you know, like you were invested in creating, I mean, it's no longer called a rape crisis center, but you were involved in the community. There was a group of women in the 70s and 80s that were at university that created the, which, what is now the sexual assault crisis center in Kingston and Belleville. And then they also created uh, places of shelter. There's Three Oaks Foundation and places that people, women and children could go if they were having a very difficult time with their partners and there was aggression yeah. involved. So I stayed in the anti-violence movement uh, as a on the board of directors and on the crisis lines and um, counseling for about 20 years. Yeah. And then after 20 years, uh, they were these organizations are quite well set up and they always have to protect their funding because sometimes when a new government comes in, you know, they have protected funding and all of a sudden they're it's at risk. Yeah. So but there are wonderful men and women that are, are funding these now and they're permanent funded. Then we ended up starting it from the other side, men who had difficulty with anger management issues. We started a program called Men Ending Abuse. And they would be mandated offenders from the courts who needed to go to counseling. So we set up programs with counselors to, to work with that. That was tough because the women's groups were not empathetic towards those programs, but they yeah. were needed as well. So yeah. those, some of those got off the ground as well. How did you get involved in it? Uh, I just decided to start working on the other side of it as well. And I, I, someone asked me if I would sit on the board of men ending abuse, and I did. It was really hard to get funding for that yeah. because it was such a low priority to help help men that had problems so with anger management. Though, too. It is important to work at all, all areas of um, some of these very difficult societal problems. Yeah. I mean, I always appreciate that about you because you you look at a, a challenge and do a 360 mm -hmm. on it and you look yeah. at different ways to approach yeah. it. It's hard. It's hard. You have to watch your philanthropy, too. Um, the the women's issues are very dear to my heart. Yeah. Uh, men's issues, too. But I didn't stay in that part that long. That yeah. was about a five year stint. Yeah. And then I served on some national boards for what's now called Advocus. The Life Underwriters Association I was on the national board for that. And I was. Um, uh, also uh, set up a foundation called the Allen Foundation that gave bursaries to high school kids who wanted to further music, things like I that. I love that. That's so, so important. I mean, yeah. we were talking about how important the mm -hmm. arts is. as Very much so. Yeah. 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 Well, anyways, I did want to interject because your awesomeness had, like, I just wanted to talk <laughs> about, like, about how, you know, living our truth and doing things that we're passionate it's about. It's funny that you should say that because... Uh, I had a situation of a few decades ago where uh, parents came in and they were they were very uh, upwardly mobile and they had one son and they wanted him to go to Harvard. And they said, uh, we want you to do a financial plan for him. He's 18 and um, set him on the right path. He's you know, he's he's doing well in math. Uh, we wanted to make sure he stays on the Harvard track and away we go. So so the, the young person came in and very shy very nice person we started to do his financial plan and when we did his goals I realized he did not want to go to Harvard he did not want to go he wanted to be a dancer he wanted to go into the arts and so we crafted a financial plan for him to do that and the parents never came back 
<laughs> so you've got to give you've got to give those little eagles room to try their wings and fly. Yeah. You know, it can't be if you do work that you love, you're going to be able to do it for a lifetime yeah. and you'll figure a way to monetize it. Yeah, it's um, so true. Uh, you know, all of my uh, children um, had their little spreadsheets on the fridge for their work money at a dollar a job. And I remember my daughter when she was four, I, I was always reaching into my pocket because I was so thrilled to have her. I was an older mom getting started. And uh, we wrote there was something at a store and gets real polite. Mom, may I have one of those? I said, yes, you may. Because she'd started her, saved her work money. And I said, it's your money. Buy whatever you want. She went, my money? No, 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 no. I don't need it. It's age four. So wow. when, they, when people start working for money and they realize the value of it, whether it's a child that's four or whether it's a person at university that has their first summer job or whether you've never worked and you get out into the work field, once you realize I have to do this and then I get that. And that creates a sort of reward for the value that I've given. Then people start thinking about, well, what do I want to do? If we have people midlife that want to change jobs. Yeah. So we need to create that segue for them to do that. Yeah. There's more opportunity than there are people to fill it. Yeah. And my son who did a physics degree, uh, I thought he was going to go on in photonics. And uh, he came after his physics degree and said, I want to be an RMT. And I said, of course you do. <laughs> Registered <laughs> massage therapy. Here he comes. Yeah. So he did that. And then uh, while he was creating his family of four children, went back to school and did seven years to become an osteopath. Wow. But if they want to, there's a way. You know, yeah. That was, those were tough years. He'd like to go back and do a master's um, to say to his Wife, Lindsay's not going to do it while the kids are little. <laughs> it's too hard that way. But whatever, whatever people want to do, you can create a path to it. We have never had a goal of any of our clients. We've had hundreds of clients that we couldn't make a plan for. Yeah. They were serious about it. They can have anything they want. They just can't have everything all at once. Yeah. I love that. And I think plans. this is yeah. an important conversation for folks because it can feel overwhelming like, oh, what? That's pie in the sky. It'll never happen. But in all the conversations that you and I have always had, it's like, okay, maybe not right now, but maybe here. But tell me what the goal is. Yeah. I had a client that I had had for about 30 years, two retired teachers, beautiful place in the country. She liked to travel. He not so much. They went on a few trips together and then she really wanted to go to Ireland. And he said, go, just go with your sister. So she went with her sister and she had a great trip. And then one day she came in without him. He had something. He was running some errands. And she was a bit tearful. She said, I had a wonderful trip, but he never got the little red sports car he wanted. And I'm like, what little red sports car? That's yeah. not in the plan. Why am I hearing about this now? Well, we knew he couldn't have it. I said, he certainly can have it. She said, even now? I said, yeah, do you have a line of credit? She said, yeah. I said, how big is it? It's 150,000. Is there anything on it? No. Well, how much is a sports car? Well, he's got his eye on this 1960s whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's 15,000. And I said... Well, why wouldn't we put that on the line of credit and pay interest only? Is it going to retain its value? She said, he says so. Probably go up in value. Go get the sports car. It's going to cost about $63 a month to carry that line of credit. You don't even have to pay it off. Yeah. When he's finished with it, sell it for $25 or whatever, clear the line of credit. His, most people's hobbies cost more than that each month. So if you have a goal, <laughs> please don't tell me 30 years after you want it. He got the little red sports car. It was the coolest thing. I love it. See, yeah. this is this one. Okay, so let's go back to start step one. Okay. Of the stage. So when people come in, 
we gather the data. And the first thing I do is uh, find out the goals and find out a little bit about them and if they're happy and healthy in what they're doing. And then check out their net worth, which is many categories. So we say, what, what cash do you have? What investments? What real estate do you have or want? What are your registered RRSPs, RIFs, LIFs, pensions, tax-free savings? And are there any joint ventures you have with anyone else? And is there any other assets we don't know about? Ball card collection, yeah. you know, watches, jewelry, fine wines. So we have a pretty good idea of what their assets are. We also do a family tree to see if there's anyone in their family that may become dependent on them mm. or if there's any inheritances down the road. So we at least know what's going on. Then we look at all the debt. Is there crappy debt? Yeah. Their credit card debt, lines of credit they can't clear, private loans that are at a high rate, mortgages, like maybe a first, second, and third we should amalgamate. And we look at, is that does that package make sense for their cash flow? Are their debt ratios right? And if not, let's get a banker involved. And so the way we do that is different. Many people are ashamed of debt. Yes. There's no shame in a financial plan. It's just what we have. So I say, we are not sending you hat in hand to a bank. What we're going to do is do a net risk statement. We'll get four or five banks to bid on it. How about that? Well, that's a little different. So they're not going hat in hand. We're waiting to see what the mortgage broker can do in terms of once we get the ratios and the yeah. financial plan in place. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, who even knew that that was an option? I mean, this is the difference with mm -hmm. working a professional who has all these tools that they can reflect yeah. on. Yeah. That's important. So people's goals sometimes change. They'll come in and say, we said we didn't want a cottage. Now we want a cottage. Right. So you, the plan, plan needs to be flexible. Yeah. Or um, my husband's had an injury. He's going to be on a permanent disability. Um, he thinks he should retire. And I'm like, not, not so fast. Let's review the critical illness and disability because even if the, the human resources folks or whoever are bugging him to go back to work, if this doctor will back him if he should stay off work. We want to grow the pension as big as we can before he moves into retirement. Right. So the life insurance and disability, critical illness, group benefits, that whole uh, needs analysis has to be done as part of the financial plan. And then if we need to shop the market for life insurance or critical illness or disability insurance, or we want them to join a group plan they have not yet joined, we make those recommendations. And then, and then, and then we're pretty good with the gentle nudges, getting them to do their homework. Another one is wills and powers of attorney, bringing the legal advisors in. Yes. I don't like my clients walking around without a will. And I certainly don't like them walking around without powers of attorney. Because yes. if you're over 18 and you have a skiing accident or you get bonked on the head or you have a, you know, a heart condition or something that you, you can't think properly, who's in charge of you? If you don't have a power of attorney named the province of whatever, in this case, Ontario is in charge of you. Yeah. If it's a long-term prolonged disability, they will step in, liquidate your assets, put them in daily interest and start to spend them. You want to name someone that gets you as your power of attorney. Ditto power of attorney for health. If you haven't named a power of attorney for health, then you can't have anyone make decisions for you except the province. You know, they might say, you know, my, my families are in the Belleville, Toronto and Guelph area. You know, if I got bonked on the head and I didn't have my powers of attorney, they might say, well, oh, we have a nice nursing home for these in Windsor. You know, name someone or two or three people that get you. So you'll need three documents to talk to your lawyer about. Talked about the will. So if I pass away, where does my stuff go? Who are my dependents? How do I want to assign my estate? 
my power of attorney for health. So I have someone that knows I much prefer chocolate pudding over jello. Yeah. Or power of attorney for property. So my bills can be paid. And if I come back, then I still have my properties and my little bed and breakfast and anything else that I want to come back to or not. But at least my powers of attorney would know that. Yeah. So we need those documents done. So we pretty much insist in the first year that we connect them to a lawyer that or try out two or three and, and get that done. Really neat thing is when they're buying their house, often the lawyer will throw the wills and powers of attorney in as part of the deal or give them a discount on it. So we Didn't want that, that part. Yeah. We want that, those documents done at the same time. Yeah. And I think that is really important yeah. knowledge. And sometimes we have uh, matrimonial situations that don't last. Um, divorce isn't easy, but it can be fair. Debbie Hartsman uh, had that title for a book she wanted to write years ago. So she and I ended up collaborating on that book. And you can have a respectful divorce. Yeah. You don't have to have uh, a mess for a divorce. Um, there's a lot of emotion around a divorce because it feels like a failure. But people grow and change. And if the relationship no longer suits and cannot be mended, it's much better to have peace and safety in two separate households than it is uh, strife. And you can divide the assets and, and make it fair. Yeah. And coach people along with that. I think the thing about guilt and shame, you know, that is often connected also with finances. Like, I should have known. But you didn't know. Same you thing as housekeeping. Same thing as right issues. Yeah, you think you should have known. And I, this is why I appreciate you so much because you humanize it and go, well, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. We're starting and we've we got start, a plan. Yeah. And we, it's very yeah. thorough, right? And yeah. People often procrastinate, though. It's human nature. They'll say, I'm going to finish university, then I'll do a financial plan. Yeah. Well, they finish university, they meet the love of their life. We're just going to get married, get the wedding out of the way, then we'll do a plan. Yeah. Life happens. Maybe they buy a house, maybe they don't. Have some kids come along. We'll just get the kids through high school and university, then we'll do our plan. And they, it's not even spoken. It's just, they just procrastinate because yeah. they think there's a better time once I get this handled. And there is, there is no better time than the present to start. Even if you don't implement the plan, you can have information before you need it, yeah. the very second you need it, or five or 10 or 15 years after you needed it. Yeah. And I would say the number one thing is if people have a plan later in life is they did wish they'd started earlier, Yeah, but they can have the first two sessions, Yeah, you know, gather the data, set the goals. We can give them lots of homework, go away and do this, come back in two years and they'll do it. Yeah. And I've had clients call me two or three or five years later saying, you did a plan for me in, you know, 2015 or 1998 or whenever it was, you told me to do this. Can you just run those numbers for me now? Cause I think I'm, readier than I was before. Of course. I've even had clients that have left, you know, because maybe their partner went into the business. Well, they're not mm -hmm. going to leave their money with me if their partner's in the business. Yeah. And uh, 12 years later, the partner and they have ended and they say, can we come back? Of course you can. Yeah. As long as it's use, we're useful. Come, go. We're not territorial about anyone's money, but we do very much look at behavior. Yeah. If you want to have a financial plan done, the client's going to do the heavy lifting. They're the one bringing the paycheck in and doing the partitioning of the money for the travel fund and the car fund yeah. and the kids fund fund and the buffer and the house fund. And then the long-term money is what we handle. And that's got to be them for their long-term goals, whether yeah. it's buying that cottage or sending the kid to the second degree or doing 
you know, that trip at the 30th wedding anniversary around the world or whatever they want that's meaningful. Sometimes we have a couple where one says the number one thing we have to do is pay off the mortgage. We're not doing anything until we pay off the mortgage. And I'm like, did you want to be married? Just don't want to be there. You have to have a balance. Yeah. You know, sure. Pay off the mortgage and let's see what we can dump on the mortgage each year. But you still need to get that nice bottle of wine and have that trip and have some have grandma come in and babysit the kids so you can get some alone time, that sort of thing. And um, so you have a relationship. You can't do all magic. Yeah. Then nothing ever gets paid off and the credit cards don't get amalgamated and paid off and the car loans are the never ending story. So you have to have that balance. So here's something. We had a client that inherited $4,500 from an aunt. Okay. And this couple fought for about three months and couldn't decide what to do with this found money, this 4,500 bucks. And so they came in and said, you have to tell us what to do with this. Like, well, it's manna from heaven. Well, I think it should go on the mortgage. Well, I think we want to redecorate the dining room. And I said, well, so when it's found money, how about this? It's not part of your normal financial plan. So here's Lee's Allen's recipe for found money. Divide it in three. Put a third of it on your crappiest debt. <laughs> put a third of it into new investments and go and have some fun with a third of it. Nobody's going to fight. Nobody's going to yeah, look yeah. back and say we should have ought to. Yeah. So they said, well, our mortgage is like $330,000. we are going to go in with $1,500 and, and talk to the banker and say we want to put this lump sum. We've never done that before. With $1,500, I said, yes, you are. All right. In they go. The banker was, good for you. Do you know how many bits of interest you saved? And they said, it was an amazing experience with $1,500 on our $300 plus thousand dollar mortgage. Then they did a spousal RRSP. And then they sent me a note with the other $1,500. They bought two mountain bikes. Like, how fun is that? That's awesome. Yeah. No. Listen, I feel like... We, we have this, the different stages that we're going into. You've done such a great job just giving us an overview. And so we need people to come back and stay tuned for the next episode. Happy to. Thank you for having me. Thank you.